out your scriptures and turn with me to Genesis chapter 22. We'll be looking at the first 14 verses of that. A few weeks ago, while you're turning there, a few weeks ago we finished up our Alpha course. That's a, a course, a six-week or seven-week course that we offer that just explains the basic gospel of Jesus Christ. And on one of those days, we have what's called a Super Saturday, where we spend all day Saturday watching videos and, and, and discussing Jesus. And we were sitting having lunch at the Super Saturday, and I discovered that uh, Steve Philbrook and I have one of the same uh, favorite movies in common. It's a Wonderful Life. That uh, made a huge impression on me as a child, and it still does. He, uh, he shared, and I don't know if he'll mind me sharing this, that, that he wells up at the, at the end of that, as I do, too. It's a Wonderful Life is a great movie on, on numerous levels. It explores some of life's deepest themes, family values, sacrificial living, and even a great love story to boot. But at the center of the movie is another of one of life's common experiences, and that is what I'm calling a bridge moment. A bridge moment. A moment in life when all of what you believe All of what you've built your life on is tested. George Bailey's bridge moment centers on the decision between having his life totally unravel because of a financial shortfall or committing suicide and collecting the life insurance money that would make everything right again. So we find him struggling on that bridge that night gripping that insurance policy and looking down into those icy waters and wondering, what should I do? Jump? And the problem's solved. Stay? And his wonderful life begins to unravel. This is one of my, on one level, my favorite movie is actually about failure. If you've seen the movie, you know that he jumps. In a situation where life doesn't seem to make sense, he stayed home, didn't he? He sacrificed throughout all his life, didn't he? He placed others before him throughout his whole life. That's what the movie is showing us. And yet, that wonderful life has dealt him A terrible card. George Bailey chooses suicide and the insurance money. He takes matters into his own hands. He actually chooses the easy way out. He leans on his own understanding. So in a way, one of my heroes, George Bailey, actually fails the bridge moment. Whereas another one of my heroes that we're going to read about today does not. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 22. God's word says, After these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, 
and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. This is Abraham's bridge moment right here. What is Abraham going to do? If you're jumping into the story right now, you realize and you know that Abraham has been promised this son Isaac for 25 years by God himself. God has told and retold and restated over and over again, even though you're old, Abraham, out of you will come a great nation. Even though Sarah is barren and and her womb is dry, she will bear you an offspring. And, And those offspring will number like the stars. You remember he shows them the stars and the sand on the seashore? Even though Sarah is past childbearing age, she will be given a son. And you're going to name him Isaac. God even names the child. And all the nations will be blessed through him. In other words, the line of the Messiah, this snake crusher back in Genesis 3.15, is going to come through this son Isaac. That's God's promise. And finally, Abraham and Sarah have their long-lost dream come to fruition, and they laugh and they cry, and there's great joy. That's That's the last chapter. And then we come to our text here. Several years later, God comes to him and says, Now, that son that I promised you, that you just had a few years ago, I want you to take him, and I want you to sacrifice him. I want you to sacrifice him. Do you hear that how God what God is asking Abraham to do to sacrifice his beloved son, to sacrifice his one and only heir? We can only imagine the questions that are going on in Abraham's mind, right? If you're anything like me, I just sit there, I sit back in my chair and I go, what would I be thinking at a time like this? And here are some of my thoughts. Why? (laughs) Right? That's the first question that comes into all of our minds, isn't it? Why? Give me the the why. Or I I must have heard wrong. Right? This, This is kind of out of God's character. Or God wouldn't demand this. What kind of God would ask this? Human sacrifice, hold it, human sacrifice is not God's way. This is not the way it's supposed to go. This is not how I saw it all laying out before me. How is God, how is the promise of God going to come true? God provided, and now he's taking away. God, what's going on? This simply does not make sense. This is Abraham's bridge moment. What do you do when God's promises don't seem to line up with your life? What do you do when you are seemingly between this this kind of theological rock in a hard place? This this catch-22 between what God has promised and what life has dealt me. 
Here's the long-awaited promised son that God now asks me to sacrifice. Obey and lose a son. Disobey and lose a God. To jump or not to jump. This is the gut-wrenching bridge moment for Abraham. Trust God or lean on my own understanding. God's confusing way or what makes sense to me? Have you been there before? As Dale Ralph Davies put it, faith must always face the perplexity of God. It always does. That is what is called a crucible. A crucible. A crucible is a ceramic or metal container in which metals and other substances are melted by subjecting them to high temperatures in order to extract the desired substances and get rid of what's unwanted. Like removing silver from the rock or gold. And we face these in life as well. We face these crucibles in life as well. Intense and trying periods and circumstances that test your resolve, that test your faith, that test what you really, really believe. And what we see here and throughout Scripture is that crucibles are biblical. We see it here. We see it in other places. Crucibles are biblical. Psalm 66, verses 10 and 11 says, For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. And listen to this. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. Proverbs 17.3 puts it this way. The crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. That's what he's getting at, brothers and sisters. The heart. What scripture teaches us over and over again that God is not so concerned about the outside. He's really not that concerned about what we are preoccupied with. I was just watching a commercial yesterday, uh, yeah, yesterday, and it's about this new drug that's promising life, longer life, longer life, longer life. That's what we hunger after. Make me look better on the outside. Make me live longer. But God is not really so concerned about that. Not who you are. He's really concerned about who you are on the inside, your heart. Not who you present to the world. Not who you present at work. Not even who you present, because we all do it, in church. He's really concerned about who you are when absolutely nobody is looking. That's what God is concerned about. And God uses crucibles in our lives to reveal and refine our hearts. He uses crucibles like, like a sponge, where you look at the sponge on the side of your sink and you think, oh, 
must be empty, and then you press on it a little bit, and out comes this liquid. You don't see it until pressure is placed on it, and then you go, ah. That's what crucibles are all about, who you really are. That's what this crucible is all about. Who is Abraham really? Does he really trust God? Crucibles are not only biblical, but they're also very painful. As Psalm 66 says, he lays that crushing burden on our backs. That's, that's what he, the image that he is provoking. This is going to be painful. In Jeremiah 23, 29, he describes these crucibles as a hammer-breaking rock. Crucibles are painful because they're meant to break apart the hardnesses in our hearts. God applies pressure in the heat of circumstances in order to expose our selfishness. You know, it's all about me. You know, when enough pressure is is applied, you start seeing, oh my goodness, I'm more concerned about me than about anybody else. Or to expose our anger. To expose our greed and our covetousness. He applies pressure to, to expose our judgmentalness. Oh my goodness. Doesn't take much pressure there, does it, brothers and sisters? To expose our, the unwanted materials that surround the gold that he wants to release. That new man, as scripture puts it, that is encased in our idols, that rock. James Boyce puts forth perhaps that Abraham had made an idol out of Isaac. I don't see that as too far from plausible. That Isaac, instead of God, is what made Abraham's life meaningful. He started to look to Isaac and not God. That Isaac is what brought Abraham ultimate joy and not God. That Isaac had taken the place in Abraham's mind that God demands. And that could explain why God asks for Isaac back. Because all crucibles are are placed by God for a purpose, and that's the third reason. Crucibles are are purposeful. God never places these bridge moments in our life for no reason. He's not that type of God. Proverbs 24.4 says, Remove the dross from the silver, and the silversmith can produce a vessel. God places these bridge moments in our lives to remove something that hinders our relationship with him. They're purposeful. Early in the 20th century, the Chinese evangelist Watchman Nee wrote about Isaac. He said this, Isaac represents the many gifts God gives us. Before God gives them, our hands are empty. Afterwards, they're full. Sometimes God reaches out his hand to take ours. At that moment, 
we need an empty hand to put into his. We need to let something go and take hold of God. And, brothers and sisters, if you're having trouble letting go of something that God has given you to take God's hand, you have to drop something in order to take his hand. Because from time to time, God will reach his hand out. And all the gifts, he's a generous God, all the gifts that God has given you, he will say, is that more important than holding my hand? And it's this letting go which causes our crucibles. Abraham had his hands full of Isaac. And God said, take my hand. This is a text that challenges us to ask in our own lives, what gifts of God, what gifts that God has given you, because he gives everything, what gift has God given you that you can't let go of to take hold of God's hand? Is it your retirement dream? I'm not going to let go of that. Is it your reputation? Nope, not going to let go of that. Is it your life of comfort and ease that he calls and beckons us to follow him, to be like him? Not going to let go of that. And as this text puts front and center, we can have our hands full of really good things, like family, like marriage, like our kids. That's what this text puts front and center. And perhaps at this point we can begin, we can even start beginning to feel what Abraham felt. Not Isaac, not my son, not my family, not my marriage. He has to let Isaac go in order to take God's hand. And that is what we see so clearly in the next few verses. Look with me at verse 3 and following. God asks Abraham a very hard thing. And in verse 3, we read, So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there in worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood from the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. 
So they went both of them together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on the top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. We see here Abraham's obedience. One of the questions that rushes into our minds is, how could Abraham obey so instantly and deliberately? How, how is that possible with what is being required? How can he be so obedient? I think the answer is, as, as we have seen over these past ten chapters, Abraham has been prepared for this moment. He's been prepared for her role as a professional ballerina in Black Swan. Natalie Portman trained with the New York City Ballet for eight hours a day, six days a week, for 12 months before filming started. For his role in The Reverend of an early 1800s frontiersman, Leonardo DiCaprio plunged in and out of icy waters, ate raw buffalo meat, and slept in a simulated horse carcass. In order for Tom Hanks to portray Chuck Nolan, a man stranded on a deserted island in Castaway, he filmed the first part of the movie, Heavy. Then the, the director, Robert Zemeckis, went off and made another movie for a whole year while Tom Hanks dieted and lost 50 pounds so that he could portray a person stranded on an island for four years. You prepare for hard things. And God prepared Abraham for this hard crucible. In fact, you can look back at, in the last ten chapters and see that all of what God has been doing in Abraham's life is leading up to this one moment. All of his stumbles forward, as we've been calling them, these faithful stumbles forward are preparing him for this test, this bridge moment of either leaning on his own understanding. This doesn't make much sense to me and I'm not going to do it. Or trusting God. Even when it doesn't make sense. Again, Professor Dale Ralph Davies wisely wrote, When God is not clear, you go on walking in the darkness by faith and obedience until he brings the light. Listen to that again. When God is not clear, and he will be in your life, you go on walking in the darkness by faith and obedience until he brings the light. And that is what we see Abraham doing in these verses. Walking in the confusion of what God has asked by faithful obedience. Look at his immediate obedience in verse 3. The next day, immediately, early the next morning, he didn't mull it over. God asked him to do something. He didn't sit there and go, let me think about this for a week. He didn't understand what God was doing, but he obeyed. Look at his unquestioning obedience. 
you and I assume that Abraham's mind is filled with questions, don't we? That's, that's what I just sat back and I gave you my questions, and you probably have more. But do you realize that the Holy Spirit did not preserve those for us? I'm not saying that Abraham didn't have them. He probably did. But the Holy Spirit, in his wisdom, did not preserve those for us because that's not the point. The point is, trust God. Immediately. Unquestioningly. And finally, look at his perseverant obedience. This is kind of what blew me away. Three days, he's walking. He's thinking. They're having meals together. They're sleeping. He's tucking Isaac in. It teaches us that obedience, obedience that is born out of true faith is able to bear up under the weight of time. It's able to bear that up if it's true faith. And I want to prepare you, brothers and sisters, as I prepare my own heart, as I was thinking about this sermon today. There will be times, there will be times in your life where crucibles, bridge moments, God brings them into your life. And it will make no sense to you. What God has promised and what life has dealt You can't bring them together. And it won't matter how much scripture you read or memorize. It won't matter how hard you pray. Or how reformed you are. Or how many conferences you've gone to. Or how how theologically astute you are. All those things just wash away. There will be times when God's direction seems so strange, so confusing, impenetrable. But it's precisely at those times, brothers and sisters, it's precisely at those times. Go on walking, obediently, in the darkness, by faith, until God brings light. And just as a little coda to that, I am not telling you that the light will come in this lifetime. For some of you, it won't. The why question extends all the way to death. But keep walking by faith in darkness, trusting God. And he will bring light. And that's what we see in verses 10 through 14. Look with me at verse 10. When Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. He said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, Behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by the thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. 
as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. I was raised on sayings by my mother, and one of the sayings that I was raised by, she used to say, when the night is the darkest, the stars come out. Here we see the stars coming out. Here's in verse 14 is the first time that God actually gives himself the name that we know so well, Jehovah Jireh, God will provide. This is the first time in scripture where he says that name and he calls himself that. He is the provider. As Abraham raised the knife over his son's bare chest with full intention of killing Isaac. With full intention. When I was thinking about this, I thought those quick twitch muscles must have started to twitch. And that's when God said, stop. God provides a ram. At his darkest hour, the stars came out. God provided a way out, a substitute sacrifice for Abraham's beloved son, Isaac. Now a question at this point, we could ask, is, okay, if God had this in mind, why did he put Abraham through this? My goodness. If God is sovereign and knew this was the plan all along, why put him through this? And we could probably answer that a couple ways. One, we could say, well, it's to purify Abraham's faith. And, and that's really what I was talking about with the crucible. And, and we'll all go through those. And those are purifying moments. They're, what God is doing is, is he's skimming off the dross. Skimming off the dross. You could also probably say that, well, he wanted to put Abraham's faith on display. And if you look back at, at verse 5, we see that you know Abraham is saying a very faithful thing to those two young men that came with him. My son Isaac and I are going to go, and then we're going to come back. Shows great faith. And even when his son in verse 8 says, uh, Dad, I see the wood and I see the fire. Where is this sacrifice? He says to his son, God will provide the sacrifice. He's really putting Abraham's faith on display. Sometimes God will place bridge moments in your lives that will give you the opportunity to shine like lights before the world so that men will see your good deeds and glorify God. Matthew 5.16 Or, we could also answer it another way. God did all this to point to a greater Isaac. To point to a greater Isaac. We tend to think people in the Old Testament are, are uh, salvation Luddites, don't we? You know, we look back and we go, they didn't really know much. You know, how did they have all this faith without really, you know, we know Jesus, we know his name, we know all the details they didn't know any of this. I mean, at this point, Abraham is really looking for this snake crusher, this promised one. It's really foggy. They're kind of redemptive Luddites. I want to shatter that for you today. And I want to tell you that is just not true. That is just not true. John, in, in the Gospel of John, 
Jesus is having a discussion with the Pharisees. And, you know, they're accusing him again of, of blasphemy and claiming to be the Messiah. And he, at one point, Jesus says this, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. He saw it. Abraham saw it. What is Jesus saying there? What, what does he mean? What could he possibly be drawing on? He's drawing on Genesis 22. Jesus is saying that Abraham saw the gospel in all its glory. He understood the details of how God's plan was going to work. That this whole ordeal that Abraham was put through was to give him a clear picture and to give us a crystal clear picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It gave Abraham clarity on the incredible love of God the Father. You know, we, we all know John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We tend to love to get to the second half of that and not pause and reflect on God so loved the world that he gave his son. Abraham's crucible allows, allowed him to understand more than most who have ever lived the difficulty, the anguish that it took God to give his son. And it was by God's own hand. He sent Jesus full well knowing what his son was going to have to do. That day, Abraham got a crystal clear picture of the anguish God the Father went through. F.B. Meyer wrote about this chapter. So long as men live in this world, they will turn to this story with unwavering interest. There is only one scene in history by which it is surpassed. That where the Heavenly Father gave his son to death, from which there was no deliverance. You see, secondly, Abraham clearly understood the principle of substitution. The ram. Stop. There's a ram. Don't kill your son. Take the ram. Take your son away and substitute the ram in it's his place. The doomed and condemned Isaac is replaced by a substitute. This morning, we were searching for Easter eggs, having our Easter egg hunt in our house. And I was sitting on the couch near the fireplace, and we were looking for a certain egg, and Finnegan wanted to look up on the mantle. What he didn't know, and what I didn't know years earlier, because I did the same thing, is the mantle is just a piece of wood that is placed on brick. And so when he wanted to look up, the mantle flipped forward, and down came all the things we had on the mantle, all the glass and rock and pictures. No one was hurt. Praise God. Finn felt terrible, and we told him no big deal. 
No big deal at all. Why am I telling you this? Here's why. Because of my reaction. You know what my reaction was sitting right next to that mantle when I first saw it at the corner of my eye? Everything coming toppling down? My first reaction was I covered my head and I threw myself to the other side of the couch. That's what I did. I protected myself. Jesus knew what he was going to do. Whereas I threw myself out of the way, Jesus threw himself in the way. He did what I should have done. But he did it with my sins. He did it with the punishment that my sins deserve. He threw himself under the mantle and it crushed him. He took my place. He substituted himself. He took me and threw me out of the way and he allowed it to crush him. And lastly, Abraham saw clearly the principle of the resurrection. Clearly. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 18, the word lets us know that Abraham, when Abraham raised the knife over his child's bare chest, we know what he was thinking. He was thinking, okay, Abraham, I mean, Isaac is going to die. But verse 18 says, but God will raise him back to life. He was, his mind was on the resurrection. His mind said, God can do it. Can raise him up. If I kill Isaac, God is able to raise him from the dead. Now that is not what God required of Abraham and Isaac. But it was of Jesus. Jesus died and paid for our sins on the cross. And three days later, he rose again. He was resurrected. God raised him from the dead. As one preacher said on Friday, Jesus wrote the check paying for our sins, but by his resurrection, the check cleared. That's why Paul stresses in 1 Corinthians 15 the importance of the resurrection. If the resurrection is not true, the check did not clear. It's just paper. The resurrection is proof that Jesus, what Jesus did was real. That by his righteous life, we are accepted. That by his propitiatory death, our sins are paid. That by his bodily resurrection, we too will be raised in life. Because he lives, we will too. You all know the Hebrew word. Let's say it together. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much. For this word, and I praise you for preserving it for us and for revealing your glo- the glory of your gospel in it. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>